Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Picture an exhausted hiker in the snow. He gets hypothermia and wants to sleep, but if he does, he'll die. So his friend keeps him awake, slapping his face. Those slaps sting, but they could save his life. That's how Jehovah's Witnesses think about the practice of shunning. When someone's kicked out or resigns, the rest of the congregation cuts them off or shuns them. Siblings have severed contact. Children have disowned their parents. The story I've just told you is from an article on the JW.org website, which says it can be an act of love. It's strange to think it could be seen as kindness, but Jehovah's Witnesses are taught to believe it's right. Shunning sold as a way to protect the congregation from sinners, but also as a tough love strategy, a way of pressuring people to change and come back. Armageddon's around the corner, and anyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness will be killed. So it's a way of saving their life. The hiking article describes a son who's grateful that his father cut him off for 10 years. But for many people who live it... It's torture. It's horrible. It's almost like I have to grieve for people that are still alive. That's Nick French. He's the former elder who was physically and sexually abused by his stepfather, Gary Moscrop. In 2014, Nick was preparing to face his abuser in court when an email landed. From my mum saying, I've just heard that you're no longer a driver's witness. This will be the last communication that we have. And that was that. Nick's mum had already agreed to be a witness in the court case. And she was. She testified to the way in which her ex-husband had brutalised her child. But that was it. We went to the court, but we didn't speak to each other. Afterwards, she wrote to Nick's children. But there was never any mention of me. It was as if I had died, that I didn't exist. It's this extreme reaction which makes it so hard for Jehovah's Witnesses to speak out. You lose everyone you know and love. I have to shun my daughter. People have committed suicide. You don't have worldly friends. And you, you haven't got a career particularly. I would lose my income. I would lose my livelihood. Many of the sources we've been in touch with so far have already been shunned. But now we're looking for people who are still part of the religion or who woke up so recently 
they're yet to tell their family and friends. Because we need information from inside Britain's Bethel. First-hand evidence of what goes on there. What we're asking of these people is enormous. If they're found out, there's a high chance they'll end up being shunned as well. But we need their help. And the ones who'll talk to us are the ones willing to take that risk. I'm Catherine Rushton, and this is Call Bethel, from the Telegraph's investigations team. Episode 4, The Library. So I'm standing in front of the um, wall at the back of our office with my colleague Claire and we're looking at what is basically a growing patchwork of papers that we've been sticking up. We're four months into our investigation now and we've collected quite a lot of material and we've been sticking them up under different kind of posters. So we've got pink for those from America and we've got orange for Britain and blue for the rest of the world. Yes, but the thing is, we've only got two that are under the orange post-it. And those two alone are not enough to prove the database in Britain, are they? No. In the investigations team, we're always following different leads at the same time, seeing which ones work. I think of it like turning over a Rubik's Cube, looking for the best way to solve it. By December 2021, we've actually got quite a good understanding of how things work at congregation level. We know the Jehovah's Witnesses have failed some victims, like Daria and Michelle. But we don't know much about what goes on inside Bethel. What staff do with the information that's shared with them? So we're looking for people who might be able to tell us. My colleague Sophie is about to go on maternity leave, and she's spending her final weeks trawling LinkedIn. She's trying to find people who've worked at the heart of the global Jehovah's Witness organisation in America. Finally, one of them agrees to talk to her. He tells her that a group of activist computer hackers once warned Watchtower and other organisations that they were coming after them. Dear brothers and sisters, now is the time to open your eyes and expose the truth. It looks like it's from Anonymous. You've probably heard of them. They're famous for delivering messages wearing Guy Fawkes masks. We don't know that Anonymous actually tried to hack into the Jehovah's Witness organisation, but Sophie's source says he was in its US IT department when the warning came and had to work overtime making sure it was properly secure. They basically have an IT headquarters, it sounds like, which sounds incredibly secure and quite kind of complex. The source says the Jehovah's Witnesses have a high-security room behind a touchpad door that only about 10 people have a keycard for. We've no idea what it holds, but it sounds like whatever's in there is something they want to keep very safe. Then you have to go through another corridor into an airlock. He said there was a sticky piece of paper. He could see that sticky piece of paper. Yeah, he said he he saw it, yeah. At first, we misunderstand and think the paper's there to collect footprints. I've never heard of that before, footprints. And were they in bare feet then? But we quickly realise we've got it wrong. But it turns out it's actually there to trap dust. And um, I think they're pretty common in that sort of security setup. That's what happens in investigations. Things turn out to be false starts and rabbit holes. It's worth poking them to see what they are. 
but you also have to work out which leads are really worth investing time in. Well, hello. Hello. And, uh, welcome to a new week. <laughs> How are you? A source well, in America you, puts uh, me in touch uh, with a man called Virgil Turner, who sounds promising. I've spent decades making excuses for this organisation, and it, you almost convince yourself. He was an elder at multiple congregations in Wales before he moved overseas and faded from the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's the name for leaving the organisation gradually, without formally handing in your notice. The JW.org website says that Jehovah's Witnesses reach out to people who simply drift away. But Virgil says that when he faded... That was pretty swiftly followed by members of my family shunning me. Virgil has collected a large cache of Jehovah's Witness documents. Right, I will send you a link to that. Brilliant. Right, I'm in. Gosh, it's very organised. There are one, two, three, there are about sort of eight or nine folders or files. And then inside lots of those folders, you've got kind of up to 40 items in one, labelled things like source docs, um, interview docs. It's going to take me a long time to go through it. Some are documents I've seen before that we've already got on our wall. Things like pages from the Elder's Manual, which is called Shepherd the Flock of God. Other documents are new to me. I spend the day going through them all and call Virgil back. On that call, he mentions another document, one that isn't in the collection I've been going through. Yes, the child protection list that was, albeit blank in the example I gave you. Sorry, you said blank in the example you gave me. I'm not sure I've seen that example. Oh, yeah. So the copy I've got is the exact one that was in use in this congregation. This document could be the first evidence that elders in Britain have been asked to make records of abuse allegations in their congregations. Virgil sends it to me, and I'm nervous as I open it. At the top, it says child protection in bold letters. Oh, wow, look. It's good, isn't it? Really good. So, name of individual, well, six columns, and then different titles at the top. Name of individual, identity of victim or alleged victim, date, elders handling the matter, court action, congregation action. It's really comprehensive, isn't it? Yeah. How do we know it was used in Britain? If you look at the properties... Yeah. Um, and go to details, you can see the author. And that is the name of someone that we know was very senior in the Jehovah's Witnesses in this country. Oh, OK, brilliant. It's quite a startling document. Well done. It's evidence that there's a system in place at congregation level for recording child sexual abuse cases. Claire puts it on the wall under orange for Britain. These documents are a roadmap of sorts. We can see snapshots of how the Jehovah's Witness congregations work. The next step is to figure out how that fits into the bigger system and what information is passed on to Bethel. When an elder calls with an allegation of child sexual abuse, who picks up the phone? What do they say? We've been trying to find sources who know about this in the UK. So far, we've had no luck. But two men in America help us understand how it works. Hello, this is Ryan. Ryan doesn't want to reveal his last name, because very few of his Jehovah's Witness friends know he's left the organisation. But he did, in 2018. 
I really love the story of how he woke up. You see, Ryan used to be a tour guide in New York at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I was giving these biblical tours for Jehovah's Witnesses. They're wildly popular. There were, in fact, two groups of tour guides at the Met. They both offered tours for Jehovah's Witnesses, but they weren't friends. The two groups detested each other. We were rivals. A Bible tour war. One day, Ryan decided to Google his group to see how it was faring against the competition. And I was curious, you know, what is our reputation on social media? It wasn't good. And there was a post on XJW Reddit. That's a forum on a social media site. Basically, like, blasting the tour that I gave. Like, just making fun of it. Ryan was really upset by what he saw. But he couldn't stop reading the page. It was full of posts by ex-members. And he started to click on some of the links. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to look at this one YouTube interview. It was footage from the Australian Inquiry the one that found the Jehovah's Witnesses had kept records of more than 1,800 alleged victims of child abuse. And then that's when, that's what woke me up. He hasn't told his Jehovah's Witness friends. Because once I express that I do not believe we have absolute truth, then the shunning begins. One of the reasons the Australian inquiry struck such a chord with Ryan is that he often worked on the switchboard inside Watchtower's offices in Patterson, New York. And uh, sometimes those phone calls were regarding uh, child uh, sexual abuse that took place in the congregations. Over the course of years working there, Ryan noticed something that left a deep impression. The volume of calls that I received every day, just personally, was about five calls a day regarding child abuse. Now, some of them could be multiple calls from the same elder body. If there were five calls a day per operator, that's about 20 calls a day and about 100 calls a week. 100 calls a week. That's more than 5,000 calls a year. It's an estimate, and we can't verify it. And the Jehovah's Witnesses say it's wrong to assume that every one of these calls was a new child sexual abuse case or that the person being accused of abuse was one of its members. But even with those caveats in place, and in the largest Jehovah's Witness population in the world, Ryan's account is troubling. And I thought in my mind, why are there so many calls coming in week after week, month after month, routing these calls? It it really bothered me on the subconscious level. Phone calls would come in from elders every day. We always would say good morning or good afternoon, Jehovah's Witnesses, how may I route your call? You knew it was an issue when there were two or three elders on the line. You would usually hear one or two, you know, Mike, are you on the line? And sometimes they would fumble. They didn't know exactly how to explain the nature of the call. And so I would say, is this regarding um, abuse? And they're like, yes, we need to talk to the legal department. One moment, please, I'll direct your call. And then I would just transfer the call. He would put them through from the switchboard to the service desk. And then the service department would transfer you over to the legal department and give uh, instructions on how to handle a case regarding children uh, that may be allegedly uh, abused. The last voice you heard there is Kevin Dean. 
He's a former elder who called Bethel in 2019 to report a child abuse case in his congregation. We can't be sure Kevin came through to the office Ryan was in, but it was certainly one like it. When he was patched through to the service desk, he remembers people on the other end of the phone taking notes. And he knows that... Because you can hear the uh, tap, tap, tap of the keyboard as you're typing. That tap, tap, tapping. He's describing people on the service and legal desks actually compiling data. We don't know where it goes to after that. But if what Kevin's saying is correct, surely the staff on those desks know what data they collect. But there's a problem. You never know who you're talking to. They will never give their names. They're giving legal advice, but you're not sure if they're a paralegal or a lawyer. You can ask them their name and say, sorry, Brother Dean, I can't give you my name. At the same time as staff on the service and legal desks tap, tap, tap information into their computers in Bethel, they also ask the elders to fill in a form. It's like a five or six page questionnaire that asks all the details regarding the abuse, the response of the elders, just everything to do with that uh, allegation. For Kevin, the whole process was disturbing. He tells Claire the day he stepped down as an elder. That's the last time anybody talked to me. Kevin and Ryan have told us here who it is that collects data about child abuse in the Jehovah's Witness headquarters, that the service and legal desk take the calls and, crucially, make notes and give the elders a questionnaire to fill in. I wonder what's in those notes, like... Are they following the instructions from the 1997 letter? Yeah, it made me think of that too. Or also the tiny writing document in Montana Mm. where it looked like they'd filled out lots of fields on a call. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's the service or the legal desk. The legal desk is quite kind of self-explanatory. But the service desk, like, what is that? It comes up a lot in the elders' manual. And as far as I can tell, it's basically the department that deals with loads of problems. So if you phone in and something's really, you know, you've got a tricky situation, that's where you go. OK, so ideally we need to find these people in Britain. Yeah. One day, Virgil, the former elder from Wales, comes through. I think we've got a small breakthrough, a sort of small Excel spreadsheet um, with a list of the people who, in 2017 were working in the service for the service desk and the legal team in the UK. So looking through them, I'd say there are kind of maybe 30 names or something and about half of them are service desk and half a legal desk. It's a solid lead. At last, we've got names of people in Britain who might have direct knowledge of how the Jehovah's Witnesses deal with abuse allegations. We have to work out which ones to approach first and then try to find them. The very brief summary of mine is that they are all either current or unfindable because they've got very common names, for example, and we don't know what part of the country he's in. What a dreaded name. I know. (laughs) I just have no idea how (laughs) how to narrow him down. There's just all sorts everywhere. This is one of the very unglamorous realities of investigations. You spend ages looking for information and sometimes you get totally stuck. But if you can find one single detail about a person, a birth date, for example, the name of their partner, a town where they once lived, you can use that shred of information to build a picture. We make some headway with the names on Virgil's list. So I found a guy on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, he describes himself as a former minister. 
which makes you wonder if he's left the Jehovah's Witnesses. So he's promising. Yeah. Uh, here's another man. He was on the service desk. He's moved an address far away with no obvious attachment to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Things don't go according to plan. I did a door knock yesterday, again, in somewhere that was a total pain in the ass to get to. <laughs> the addresses were wrong, so that is an unusual. You sometimes have to knock you know, five or six addresses to find the right person. Normally I feel quite positive about things, but today I don't, in that both these individuals who I knocked, I thought were good bets for having left. The bigger problem is I can't get to them, and that is unusual. Normally you can find people. So yeah, it is pretty bleak. (laughs) We're six months in by this point, and we're starting to worry that this investigation will fail. Could the cases we've heard about here in Britain be isolated? Jehovah's Witnesses here might not operate under the same rules as they do elsewhere. But then, the colours start to line up on the Rubik's Cube, and Claire has a breakthrough. More on that shortly. Hello, Cara McGugan here, the executive producer of Call Bethel and the host of another Telegraph podcast, Bed of Lies. For both these narrative series, we've spent months digging into complex scandals, sifting through long documents to find the truth, and giving victims the space to tell their stories. Making shows like these takes time, and we couldn't make them without the Telegraph subscribers. If you'd like to support our original journalism and read our award-winning coverage, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. That's telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast, or click on the link in the episode description. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's worth saying at this point that my colleague Claire is quite a dark horse. You wouldn't think it if you were introduced to her. She comes across as very open and chatty. 
She's also a far cry from the stereotype of a journalist that you see in films. There's no harassed look and trench coat here. She wears her hair long and is mostly seen in floral dresses. But it's in keeping with this dark horse aspect of her personality that whilst we've all been looking for service or legal desk staff, she's also been pulling at another thread, unbeknownst to any of us. So I've got some news to tell you all. She's had a message from someone who used to be a very senior figure in the Jehovah's Witness organisation in Britain. Just saying, I've been asked to contact you. What kinds of things are you after? It's from a man who spent decades as a circuit overseer. That's a bit like a regional manager for the Jehovah's Witnesses, a rung above even the most senior elders. I hope he's got some first-hand evidence about what's been going on in congregations around the country and maybe in Bethel as well. Claire's been told this man keeps a library of Jehovah's Witness documents in his house. She replies, asking to visit. Claire's on a slow-moving train to the English coast. I feel quite nervous and that there's quite a lot riding on this visit, potentially. At the moment, we've hardly got any documents that are UK-specific and we don't really have any evidence that the database exists in Britain. So I'm hoping this person can finally give us what we need. That evening, she calls me from her hotel. Hello, are you able to speak? Yeah, I am. How are you doing? So I arrived and got out of the taxi and I walked towards their home. And this man, uh, William... They've asked to remain anonymous, so they've chosen the pseudonyms William and Eleanor. Uh, I just hugged him. (laughs) (laughs) I felt ever so slightly embarrassed, but he just smiled. uh, And I tried to explain that I'm just so happy we're meeting. I went into their home and we had a cup of tea. And we were sitting on the sofas and there was this moment where Eleanor, the um, William's wife, looked at me and said, so why are you investigating this? And it felt like one of those moments where you have to prove yourself. And my heart was in my mouth when I said it because I was frightened they might shake their heads and say, well, that's not a good enough answer. We're not going to work with you. As journalists, we're thinking, is the person I'm talking to credible? Can I trust what they say? And often our sources are doing the same, working out if they can trust us with their secrets and if we'll tell their story in the way they would like. I kind of hope I've done it, but... Oh, my goodness. ...proof will be in the pudding. If it's a test, Claire passes. She goes back to the house the next day. Hello. This time, she's allowed to record them. Although we still can't use their real voices. Hello, Claire. How are you? All right. We've got actors to voice their words. In his career as a circuit overseer, William supervised hundreds of congregations. He spent his time giving lectures at Kingdom Halls and checking the elders followed the rules. I would visit a different congregation every week and spent time training them in public ministry meetings with elders. It was also part of his job to guide them through problems. Those included cases of child sexual abuse. Did you come across lots of them in the congregations? Uh, It grew as the years went on. There were some, but the numbers began to increase. William grew concerned that elders weren't the right people to handle such sensitive situations. They had no medical or psychological training, and yet they were having to question these people and try and uh, determine 
but that they were telling the truth and what damage had been done to them. He was also perturbed by demands put on elders by Bethel. They were having more and more letters from Branch to bodies of elders saying how they should handle things when there were these cases. William believes it was part of a cultural shift in the organisation. It was an organisation that had been a sort of kindly supportive group of conscience-led Christians, really, but they'd become highly centralised and dogmatic and authoritarian. The letters to elders told them that when they handled child sexual abuse cases, they should... Always tell the victim, or alleged victim, or their parents, that they have every right to report this to the authorities. Every right. Every right to go to the police. We've heard that before. It's what Lacey Jones was told when she first reported her abuser, Clifford Whiteley, to the elders. But that doesn't mean it was an easy process. The Jehovah's Witnesses have told us that judicial committees are there to deal with the spiritual side of things and not to replace the justice system. But William claims that sometimes things didn't go that way. But it's put in such a way that um, if you do go to the police, it's going to bring the congregation into disrepute. So it's much better to leave it to the elders to deal with it, for them to find out the truth of the matter. Now, if you ask them, is that what happens, they would outrightly deny it and say, no, no, no. They're always told they have every right to tell the authorities. But because I visited so many congregations all over the country, victims told me that they were told to deal with it internally. And it's come out in court that elders said it should be kept within the congregation. We can't get into the cases, as it might give away William's identity. But there came a point when he couldn't ignore what was happening. His first step was to try and change things from the inside. Saying how unhappy I was with some of the instructions and the, uh, the damaging effect this was having upon individuals and families in all the congregations I visited. As time passed, he shared his concerns with Eleanor, his wife. Eleanor, on that, what was it like for you when your husband told you he had concerns about the way the organisation was functioning? Relief because I was thinking exactly the same. For me to be able to speak clearly and confidentially to somebody that I loved was a complete relief, which I found so reassuring that I wasn't alone. I'm not this raging apostate. And the relief to be able to exercise your own conscience is, is, is emancipating. Two years pass. William and Eleanor are unable to change things, and they decide that they've got no choice but to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses, the organisation that their families are part of. We can't tell you exactly when that was, because that might give away their real identities. But they remember it was a warm summer's day. I drove out of the Kingdom Hall, down to the sea. I walked away from a lifetime of responsibilities of service to an organisation that had taken everything from me. I started to breathe. I was free at last. Free to think for myself. Free of the shackles of men's tyrannic dominance. I had freedom of my conscience at last. 
So to both of you really, what gave you the courage to walk away from the Jehovah's Witnesses? Each other? Yes. Yes, yes, it, it was each other. From that point onwards, they've been activists, albeit ones that operate very much behind the scenes. They've helped the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse and various different police forces. They said, how do we get hold of their documents? What documents were they after? Um, Things about cases that that dealt with child abuse. Uh, I was able to say what they would have and, and where to get them. And... I think I mentioned one in those notes I've given you. They're they're up in the Midlands, uh, and they pursued that. A case in the Midlands where the police were looking for records of child abuse. The congregation said they didn't have any information to hand over. The police went in and arrested this man, and he was jailed. It sounds like he could be talking about Clifford Whiteley, Lacey Jones's stepfather who lived in Birmingham. Lacey and Detective Ensor had to fight to get the written proof of Clifford Whiteley's confession. Oh, so I'm just going to have a look here. That is because I wonder, um, this case might actually be one of the ones we've looked at. It was up in Cheshire. It's not the same case, just another one that sounds similar, where victims have allegedly had to fight to obtain the evidence required to bring their abuser to justice. It's one of a few remarks William and Eleanor make that leaves us thinking that we're not the only outsiders to the faith who are questioning whether there may be a big problem here. Moments later, Eleanor says something else intriguing. This was actually something that we discussed with the Met officers that came down. How would we get hold of all of this information without going to the branch? The Met? The Metropolitan Police? And they said we can't. We can't issue 1,600 warrants on the same day. 1,600 warrants. That's one for every congregation in the country. Did they discuss doing that? Yeah, it was was put forward as a viable suggestion at the time. But the paperwork involved and the manpower involved, they just didn't have that type of facilities. From what Eleanor is saying... It sounds like the Metropolitan Police have been discussing whether they can get hold of the database themselves and that they've thought of doing it by putting together fragments that are held in each Kingdom Hall. She believes they thought of getting all those warrants to seize records from every Jehovah's Witness congregation in the country. Were they trying to find out what records were held at Bethel by putting the jigsaw pieces together? It's a startling lead and one we plan to follow up on. But in this moment, Claire's first concern is the Jehovah's Witness documents that are in William and Eleanor's library. And could you show me that letter, do you think? Yes, yes, I can go up and get it. Eventually, Claire asks to go and see where they're kept herself. Shall we have a look in the library? There's a door, a cream door. I'm just walking through. It's not a large house, three bedrooms at most. But the library Claire's been told about is in fact two libraries. William and Eleanor have one each. The one behind the cream door is William's. It's the bigger of the two. Both rooms have pictures on the wall. A wedding photograph. A drawing reminding them, don't ever give up. They're also lined with files. There's these white folders, lever arch folders, with little writing on. In pencil, I think. So one says Ixa 
another says hearings. There's probably about 30 or 40 editions of the Bible and some other books of uh, scriptures that are labelled Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh yes, here's one, volume one and volume two. These Bibles look like they've been used a lot. William amassed a huge archive of documents from his Jehovah's Witness career. And Eleanor has thrown herself into gathering even more. Do you have a competition about who's got the most documents? (laughs) (laughs) Eleanor's got the most. (laughs) Most of the papers are neatly filed away. But on the side, Claire spots some that have letter headings from the UK. There's 0208 numbers. That's the code for Outer London. There's references to the Ridgeway in North London. I feel like I've walked into this these rooms that are kind of the epicentre of it all. They seem to have developed a system for organising all of this paperwork. Oh, the printer started. <laughs> Hopefully that's another document that's going to come out. William and Eleanor spend the afternoon pulling files out for Claire. Some contain documents we've never seen before. It's a five-page questionnaire. This one's got the address and telephone number of the UK Bethel at the top. It's a questionnaire about child sexual abuse. It's got a whole section on the individual who's been accused of child abuse, their current spiritual standing, past congregations, and whether the accused confesses to or denies the alleged abuse. But it's the next question, question two, that actually really kind of takes my breath away. What is the total number of alleged victims? The questions suggest this document could be the equivalent of the one that Kevin Dean was asked to fill in and sent to Bethel in America. It's a step forward in our investigation. It suggests that the Jehovah's Witness organisation here asks elders to collect all sorts of information about abusers. But it's not quite what Claire was after when she first replied to William's message. She came here hoping that inside one of the folders that line the study walls would be a completed S77 form. That's the one that elders fill in when someone's disfellowshipped. They used to put it in a blue envelope. Claire also hoped there might be a version of that child protection list that Virgil sent us. But this time, with the names of the alleged abusers filled in. These would be evidence that elders in Britain have been keeping abuse records, like they have elsewhere in other countries. And that there's an abuse database here as well. Do you have a child protection list? Because ideally we'd like to get copies of those. You won't, because they're in each individual congregation. Eleanor's not optimistic on our behalf. When Claire leaves for the train station six hours later, she's... A bit deflated, a bit wrung out. It's been a really interesting couple of days, and actually William's experience as a circuit overseer is really important evidence in itself. But when I was coming here, I was really hoping they would have records from abuse cases, but they haven't. She boards her train with her luggage and a small stash of papers, documents that William and Eleanor have printed off for her. She pours over them on her journey back home. Before Claire reaches London, she calls me excitedly. Uh, So I've been going through all the documents and I've actually got a copy of the 1997 letter, but the one that was sent to elders in Britain. Oh my goodness. The 1997 letter, the one that started that American lawyer, Erwin Zulkin, off on his hunt for the database there. 
but instead, this one's addressed to elders in Britain. Yeah, so it asks elders in Britain to make a report on child molesters and the congregation uh-huh. and to keep some of that information in the congregation, but also to send copies to Bethel. So I think that's exactly the same. As that's the it. That's the instructions that lead to the database. Yeah, I think so. So I think finally we've got it. It's the same letter, which in America laid the foundation for the database of abuse and the letter the Australian inquiry discovered, along with records of about 1,800 alleged child sexual abuse victims there. I'm going to put this 1997 letter here, just under this post-it. Orange for Britain. We finally have proof that instructions were given to elders. But we still don't have a complete picture. We need to find out if the Jehovah's Witnesses follow those rules in Britain, as they've done elsewhere. Coming up on Call Bethel. It will still be happening now. There'll be children that are going through exactly the same as what I went through. I said, fine, you've got 24 hours to report it, or I am. If there's a chance, there's a database of paedophiles, even if it's not certain, wouldn't you want to know and find that? Do you not want to protect the children? This episode of Call Bethel was produced by Holly Fisher, and the series producer is Pete Norton. Call Bethel is written by me, Catherine Rushton. The investigations team behind it are Claire Newell, Janet Eastham, Jack Leather, Sophie Barnes and me. Executive producers are Cara McGugan and Theodora Leludis. To stay on top of who's who in our story and to read exclusive news and behind-the-scenes details, head to the Telegraph website, We'll be publishing more every week at telegraph.co.uk forward slash callbethel. If you've been affected by the issues in this podcast or have any tips to share, you can get in touch by emailing callbethel at telegraph.co.uk. And if you're not already a Telegraph subscriber, sign up for 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast. <laughs>